Welcome, everyone. Are there any people uh, for whom this is the first visit to CIMC? Um, how many people have heard at least one in this series of talks? Uh, how many people have, have not heard one, including those who are new to, to CIMC? This is CIMC in exile, yeah. Okay. Uh, we've been going for quite a while, been a fair number of talks, uh, on what is called Maranasati, death awareness. And what I've been trying to do is to, uh, to begin each talk, review what has come before, very briefly. Obviously, the further we go, the more I'm leaving out. Uh, so it's a challenge to uh, say enough to give us some continuity and a sense of where whatever is said tonight fits in. But uh, there may be big holes in your understanding, especially those of you who are new, and we'll have opportunity to, uh, to talk it over uh, a little later in the evening. The framework being used to cover these materials, having to do with aging, sickness, death, and let's say beyond, uh, follow a very, very simple model. It comes out of, uh, whether it's myth or history, probably a little of both, on the life of the Buddha. For those of you who recall, he was protected his father did not want him to become a spiritual teacher. He wanted him to become a king, and so protected him from aging, sickness, and death, and any kind of worldly suffering, ugliness, dirt, pain, etc. But it broke down, of course. And on one occasion, the Buddha saw uh, a very old person, then a, a sick person, a corpse, and then he saw a meditating yogi. The first three brought up a lot of suffering. The Buddha felt uh, pain when he saw it and wanted to know, uh, is this what's in store for me as well? Because he'd been protected from uh, the implications of such events. And was told by his uh, charioteer, yes. The fourth messenger, as they're called, was uh, a meditator who was serene and at peace. Uh, and the Buddha said, that's what I want to do. Literally, it would be what we would call a contemplative or a monk. And if you get fixated on the external form, then uh, all of us, are, I think, looking around, are excluded. It doesn't apply to us. We have to uh, become monks and nuns, shave our heads, and drop all of our responsibilities. But I think that's just the surface meaning, as in all these teachings. The deeper meaning uh, goes well beyond name and form. Otherwise, you would just sign up for the right form and everything would be taken care of. But we know it doesn't work that way. Uh, so what it's getting at, the fourth, is a person committed to seeing deeply uh, inward seeing, spiritual awakening, 
Uh, and as in this tradition, it would be Vipassana or Zen or the many uh, forms of meditation in Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, what we've been doing is moving through all three messengers, uh, realizing that the message is really being delivered to us because all of us uh, must age, uh, we must uh, grow ill and die, all of us, without exception. Um, we've, uh, we're up to death now. I think we began it a little bit the last time we met. Uh, but I have to give you a little bit of sense of this, especially for the new people. And it's not just to refresh the memories of those who've been coming regularly, because uh, I don't think we can hear this message enough. Why uh, should you be reminded that you're going to get old? and that you're going to get sick. I mean, we already know sickness, but that often uh, sickness is an expression of our aging, and inevitably all of us must die. Who needs that? Why did you come? Why do you want to be reminded? From the Buddhist point of view, the teaching on Maranasati, or death awareness, is extraordinarily important. And over the, over the centuries, all the uh, different Buddhist traditions have developed this in their own unique way. Uh, one uh, notion being that if you haven't come to see this and to accept it, to really deeply understand that this is our, our nature, it's not weird, your practice won't have much depth. You may start the practice, but you'll falter any time there's going to be a little bit of discouragement, uh, probably discontinue the practice, or you'll just kind of get situated in a comfort zone that Practice can definitely bring you to if you do it. Sit a morning, sit every morning, sit in the evening, in, out, in, out, in, out. Soon you can learn how to be pretty comfortable. And you can kind of hang out in that comfort zone. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Others of you would settle for that. You know, sort of, let me taste that comfort zone. The heck with all this, whatever else they're saying comes that's deeper than that. And so uh, what's being suggested that uh, death and life are really walking hand in hand. You can't uh, deeply understand life if you put a wall between yourself and death, or as we uh, usually do, we put it way at the end somewhere, down the road, way down there. If you're older, it's not quite as far away. But then we can look at people who are older than us and feel relatively young. And by doing that, uh, we can keep putting off practice. So why, why remind, be reminded of the fact that we must age, uh, grow ill, and then die? This evening, let's focus mainly on, on the dying part. I'm going to go through the teachings of Atisha, who was an Indian sage who, put, who organized a lot of the materials that were uh, already in the original teachings of the Buddha and have uh, appeared up until his time. And he, uh, he has one scheme of organizing these reflections to help us wake up to this truth. And we'll go through that this evening. Um, but why think about the fact that you must age, grow ill, and die? Why do that? And a number of the benefits, or at least potential benefits, that are listed, and I'd like to just uh, sensitize you to them, uh, so that you can consider them as possibilities if you haven't already seen this in your own life. 
bringing up, for example, death. Let's say you're uh, fine. And then you take on this meditation, which is actually an invitation to bring up what are called anusaya, the latent dispositions in the mind. That is, the fear of death is no doubt in all of us. For some, it surfaced. Maybe it was brought forward by the death of people we love, or for whatever reason. Some children are sensitive to it, sensitive to it very early in life. Many of us go through a long period of time, and then it comes as a shock. I mean, years and years and years. When you invite it up in these methods, one of the benefits is to elicit it. That is to invite these tendencies that are buried, so to speak, in consciousness, uh, to bring it to the surface. Uh, why do that? Uh, is this an exercise in, uh, in masochism? It could be. There's no point in bringing it to the surface because what you're often bringing to the surface is fear. And why would you want to do that? There really is no point in doing that unless you know what to do with the fear that you've, you're bringing up. If you're very new to the practice, uh, you might find it difficult, it might even seem fanciful, to do some of the things that are going to be suggested, have been suggested in these talks and also this evening. But also, if you're new, take it as a possibility, uh, as a consideration for one reason to practice. If the fear of death is there anyway, and I think probably most of us would agree that there's a good chance that uh, it's some form or another, to some degree or another, it is there. In inviting it up, we uh, are doing something that's potentially liberating for us. The fact that we're not in touch with something doesn't mean that it's not influencing us. It can be an enormous burden to be carrying around unexamined fear. It can distort our life tremendously, uh, limiting what we can do. It can keep us from living. If you're very, very frightened of death and have not uh, faced that, there's a good chance that perhaps you're also frightened of living. Uh, finally, in this approach, it's not that life comes first and, first and death is way at the end. It's they're walking hand in hand. And I think some of that will become clearer. The moment we enter existence where we've already begun to die, we've begun to age and die, all of us without exception. And so one benefit of it is to invite the fear of it so that we can practice with it and either weaken or uh, free ourselves of this fear rather than carry it around in some disfigured kind of form. Uh, another uh, purpose of this fear, of examining the fear, bringing up or considering the fact that uh, uh, life is characterized by these uh, conditions, is that it awakens us to how precious life is. And anyone who's done this, unless you're overwhelmed by the fear, uh, there are some very, very positive benefits that potentially are there in terms of seeing how precious it is to have this life. Now, in the context of Dharma practice, and I'm speaking to all of you as yogis, as meditators, or perhaps people who are considering meditation as a possibility in your life, uh, 
from the Buddhist point of view, nothing is more precious than uh, living a life of self-awareness. That is, a life that's examined. Uh, Socrates put it, a life unexamined is not a life worth living. I don't think most people really feel that, uh, but I think perhaps some of you at least can entertain the possibility that just blindly bumbling forward, uh, first of all, probably it's not working too well. If it is, then maybe we should uh, cancel all of this stuff. Maybe you know something that we don't or the Buddha didn't know. And so it's an attempt to light a fire under our butt. It's called Samvega. Samvega is a kind of a spiritual emotion in the Buddhist teaching. There's no exact English counterpart for it, but it has to do with urgency, spiritual urgency, understanding that we don't have forever, that it's a great gift to have a human life and to do something with it. Now, the benefits are on many levels. You, uh, some of them quite ordinary. Ordinary not meaning trivial. Uh, having nothing to do with uh, beginning to sit or to sit more often or to practice with more sincerity or zeal or go to retreats. It just, uh, if you contemplate this and then you go back to your to people in your life, uh, you can often see them in a new light. You don't have forever with them. Some of us know that. We've already lost people that we love. We don't have forever. And you look at this same person who perhaps you see day in and day out, maybe there's an obstinate familiarity that's, that's there, and you look at them uh, as comrades in aging, sickness, and death, which all of us are. And so it can have a tenderizing effect. Like Adolf's tenderizer, I don't know if that product is still around. It tenderizes the heart, though. The, uh, when you begin to see we're all in this boat, maybe some of that will become clearer. Uh, so many of the acts that we human beings are capable of and the, some of the pettiness and triviality and cruelty, I wonder if it would be possible if we all really and deeply understood that we're all in the same boat, that we're all in this together, we're all comrades in aging, sickness, and death, all of us. It changes things. So uh, the title of all these talks is called Shining the Light of Death on Life. They're really about life. There's, a, there's a, a very large and, I think, an excellent literature on hospice work, uh, uh, Kubler-Ross, and all kinds of people, and Buddhist teachings, and Tibetan teachings, and the original teachings of the Buddha, on the process of dying, on rebirth, and so forth. Uh, the thrust here is really on life. It's taking into, uh, let's put it as a question, in uh, bringing to light and bringing up the fact that we don't have forever, can that revitalize our life? Can it serve that purpose? Uh, so that uh, we, we're using death really in the service of living. Now, on the way, you may have to go through fear. Uh, I'd be amazed if you didn't. Uh, you may come to the conclusion that this is an exercise in morbidity and uh, why did you come to this church, or why bother with, with uh, Buddhism, uh, etc. But where it's headed is to enhance uh, our time to, uh, together on this planet. That's what it's designed to do. Other benefits can be um, 
when the time comes for our own death, if we've contemplated the naturalness, the obvious truth, that everyone must die, and we'll come to that's the first one of Atisha, we'll come to that in a few moments, the inevitability of death. If we contemplate that, uh, as that starts to, that thought is repeated and reflected on, uh, it may help us, uh, it may help us uh, to relate to this obvious truth in a more natural way. Uh, in the Buddha's psychology, uh, reflections that are repeated, like metta, loving kindness, in a sense, dharmic thoughts that are taken up and reflected on over and over and over again. What's happening there is that we're replacing or we're adding to the mind thoughts that have a direction, a spiritual direction. If you do it enough, it starts to become part of your, uh, if the, mi- the mind starts being inclined in the direction that your thoughts are going, as it, they all are right now, whatever our conditioning is right now, more than we realize perhaps, we're inclined to act in certain ways. And so it's bringing into the mind thoughts about the way things are. When we contemplate the fact that everyone must grow ill, everyone must age, etc., this is true. It's not Buddhist. It's not a, the latest ideology uh, to hit Harvard Square. Uh, it's, uh, it's true for everyone. No one's exempt from this. And more and more, if the mind can take up these thoughts and digest them, assimilate them, uh, what can happen is uh, the way we relate to this fact can change, including when the time comes for our own death. Uh, it can help us to help others who are dying. It can help us to help others who are aging or, or who are ill. Because the, the degree to which we have not taken this into account in our own lives, how can you be of much help to someone else? Uh, to me, it's ludicrous that you're a professional and your job is to help uh, elderly people or sick people or dying people, and you haven't faced that in yourself. Uh, in a certain way, you can deflect all of your energy onto these other people who need your help as a good way to never come to terms with yourself. But you are the loser in that. Put, put more positively, the degree to which we have seen some of that in ourselves, and in a meditator's life, it's inevitable. There's no way to escape this. And so, if we can get more comfortable with this, our own, not as an ideology or as a theory, but see it at work in our own consciousness, of course we're going to be more helpful to other people when they experience these conditions in life. Um, in a moment now, I'm going to uh, go through Atisha's nine, uh, nine contemplations. They're ways of uh, helping us accomplish what I've been talking about. And they're designed to invite up any emotions that may be associated with the words. And I'll suggest a few ways in which we can do that. It isn't desirable to do this if you're at a time in your life when you're already very depressed or struggling uh, or perhaps reasons that only you know uh, what might be needed um, to bring, is to bring more joy, more gladness to the heart. 
It's not a practice that's for everyone at any time. No practice is, really. It's a, a useful practice when it's employed skillfully. For some people, it can be very, very helpful. It has been for me. It's been one piece of helping me to come to terms with my own mortality. The scheme has, what's in it. By no means the only thing that's helped, and perhaps not even the main. I don't think it is the main thing that's helped. Life itself has been the, great, the greatest teacher for me. But let me uh, review and hint, especially for those who are rather new to the practice. Let's say you, you bring up the, the notion that uh, everyone must die. And it's formulated in different ways, but uh, the key thing is to acknowledge that, that it's inevitable, that I'm subject to it. Anyone who's ever lived has, has, has had to die, has. That's brought up. And that this law applies to me as well. It has to, that has to really sink in. It's not just uh, some philosophic uh, reflection, poetic, uh, philosophic, religious reflection, and we get dewy-eyed and feel that we understand life a little bit better now. It really, to, to derive its full power, it has to be experienced as something quite real uh, for each one of us. That is, it's talking to us. It's about us, each one of us. So let's say you do it, one form or another, or if it comes up naturally, but tonight we'll be emphasizing the scheme. Uh, so that let's say the fear of dying does come up. And often, it's not really the fear of death. If you look closely at it, uh, what it is is the fear of the idea of death. And this is actually not a small point. Uh, we are very much uh, tyrannized by psychological time. Uh, physical time is out of our control. We haven't mastered physical time. I don't know if we ever will. That is. The body is subject to certain lawfulness. But psychological time, when unexamined, which is, of course, another form of thinking, brings with it a tremendous amount of unnecessary suffering. So often when people say they're afraid of, of dying, what they're really talking about is they're afraid of the idea of their own death. And the ego hears this idea, and of course it doesn't like it. It, do, it, it doesn't want to not be around. Funny way of putting it, but you know what I mean. Okay. Doesn't like it at all. Um, when you invite it and the emotions come up, should they come up, uh, you begin to open your heart and fully uh, start to entertain the truth that uh, we're part of this lawfulness. And there it is. Let's say you're sitting there, or it can come up in other postures, but for the moment, let's say we're doing sitting meditation. And there it is, fear. Well, it's at this point, once you arouse the fear, that you're encouraged to bring the practice into play. The practice of, in, in, I'm saying Vipassana, but if you have a different meditation practice uh, that has awareness in it, then you don't invite it there just to be there and then for you to feel terrified for an hour. Uh, you invite it up. Uh, because you want it to, but you can't wait, you know, to invite it because you're really fed up with it controlling you from underneath a rock for so many years. And so when it comes up, of course, the degree to which it can be a beneficial kind of practice 
is, is, has to do with the, the state of our practice. If we're a beginner, really new, and the mind is still uh, all caught up, full of vexation, stirred up very easily, not much samadhi, in other words, not much calm, not much clarity, uh, probably when that comes up, uh, you won't be able to handle, handle it too well. But even the beginnings of some experience with it can be very, very useful. Just the, a, a little step forward towards making friends uh, with this fact of, 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 of existence can be beneficial. Perhaps it's only a minute or so, and then you go back to the breath and steady the mind, just as you would in the, in, on a retreat. And then when the mind feels a little bit more calm, then uh, once again, you entertain the fear that, it, that you have asked to come to the surface. Can't blame anyone else. You, you did it. And there it is, and you begin to see fear travel through the body, feeling the uh, strong bodily sensations, the way in which the pulse and the heart and the breath and everything changes. You can hear thoughts, and perhaps you'll begin to see that, you know, I'm not, in a certain way, dying. But I have an idea that at some point in the future, I will die, and that's terrifying. So who is that terrifying? Find out. That's the big question. Who's frightened? And as you investigate, little by little, uh, you can use the breath as a support, breathing in, breathing out, and at the same time being aware of the fear that has come up because you've taken on this contemplation. Uh, you can begin to see the impermanent, empty nature of it. In short, the whole practice of vipassana is meant to be used here. You begin to see that should fear uh, arise and start to operate and course through the body and uh, fill the mind with disabling thoughts, if you're able to stay with it for a while, you begin to see that the thoughts are just thoughts. And they're uh, kind of thin. They don't last. They fall away. They're gone. They're replaced perhaps by relief. And the expression of the fear in the body also isn't forever. And then that leaves two. And you see that it's impermanent. You see that it's empty. Empty of what? Of any enduring quality. It isn't something that's really and truly substantial. But until you investigate it firsthand, up close, face to face, that is, receive the moment without separation. That's the heart of what we're learning, how to receive this moment without any separation or judgment. That's the hardest thing to learn, not to sit the three-month retreat or sit for four hours without moving even a, a pinky. It's to be with the experience of your life as it is in this moment, to be able to receive it without separation, to be right there for it, with it, in it, to commune with it, to enter into communion with it, to be intimate with it. Uh, as you learn how to do that, something extraordinary happens. What was fear starts to become not problematic at all. The energy that's been held, trapped, frozen in that unexamined fear is released. There may be a, a few moments of clear mind, of a freshness, of peace. And so you can have a clear mind in an aging body. Did that occur to you yet? That in fact, all these talks are really about that. How to develop a clear mind in an aging body, an aging, dying body. Now, there are many other factors. I don't mean to be facile. 
as if it's a piece of cake. It's not. There are many obstacles, not the least of which is the physical decay of the body, the brain and so forth, that can make it harder, but not impossible. Now, when there is that quality of attention to the fear that you brought up in any of these, that, these reflections that we're going to go through, the reason that that fear is transformed into something actually beautiful and a feeling of great freedom is because something is absent. There's that attention, but something is not there, and that's why it's beautiful. And you know, you know what, is, what is not there? Guess. I will give you the answer. Me is not there. When, it ha when that quality of attention is there, there's no self-conscious separation. There's no meditator who's looking at the fear. There's just that attention is on fire. It's a flame, and it's right there with it. Uh, we have fancy names for it. We call it non-dual. We call it all kinds of things. Beginner's mind, don't know mind. No separation. No thinking. It's just clear attention. In that moment of clarity, uh, there's no self-conscious me there, because me is what's muddying up the water, even when me is doing the observation. It's still helpful, but there's a ways to go. When we're still self-conscious as a meditator, that self-consciousness muddies up the water a bit. Little by little, that withers, and they're just clear seeing. And that's the whole point of practice. The practice of death awareness, as taught in the Buddha's original teachings, is part of the teaching on impermanence, anicca. It's perhaps the most graphic, the most highly charged, uh, the most frightening for all of us. But it's just one expression of the fact that everything is changing. If you come to Buddhist practices and classes and read books and tapes and so forth, uh, probably it's coming out of your ears. Everything is changing, wherever you look. The cosmos, microscopic, historical, whole civilizations, and of course the Buddha's uh, magnificent contribution to all of this is to see it moment to moment in you, to see the law of impermanence at work in us from moment to moment, to see the liberating power of that. So all that death awareness is, is an expression of it, and what is offered to us, whether you believe it or not, you know, it's not a matter of believing in it, but at least entertain the possibility. We see that everything that arises passes away. Everything that's born dies. But also what is being delivered in this teaching is that there is something called the deathless. There's something, or the unborn, the same thing. Is there anything that is untouched by culture, untouched by conditioning, untouched by ethnicity, untouched by Buddhism? That just is. I would say all the great religions at their deepest are, are talking about that, whatever the words they use may be. And that's, there's a yearning in the heart of many human beings, perhaps deeply all human beings, I don't know, to come to that place. It's not to get a good rebirth, that may be helpful, but that's not the final point at all. Uh, in fact, the rebirth is here, right here, from moment to moment. And so it's in this way that some of these reflections that may seem a little bit artificial uh, can be brought to life by the same practice that most of you are doing. 
Uh, I'm going to read something from Taoism, from the uh, Tao Te Ching, verse 76. My own feeling is that everything has been said here, that's been said here uh, for the past few months, all these many talks, are really a commentary on this. Humans are born, born soft and flexible. In death, they become stiff and hard. Plants are born soft and pliable. When dead, they become brittle and dry. Therefore, those who are stiff and rigid become disciples of death, while those who are soft and yielding become disciples of life. The hard and stiff break. The soft and supple triumph. Put in more ordinary language, of course the body must age, it must get sick, it must die, but must the mind? And what the Buddha's answer to that is no. Here's this uh, Atisha's Death Awareness Outline. Uh, and what I've said applies to all of them. Everyone has to die. This is the inevitability of death. How, how to arouse that? You're given tremendous creativity and license to arouse the meaning behind that everyone has to die. You can do it by repeating the thought. First, I would suggest, if you take it on as a meditation, calm the mind. Be with the breath for a while. When the mind settles down a bit, take up the thought Come to rest in the breathing first, then take up that thought, everyone has to die, and allow it to sink in. We all know what the words are. Let it sink into the heart. When the mind is very, very still, when the heart is very still, to me, mind, heart are the same thing. It's not me, that's Dharma usage. When the heart's very, very still, and a thought like this, touches that stillness. It stimulates a kind of understanding that's deeper than an intellectual understanding. We all begin with intellectual understanding, of course. And that's part of why it's so important to come to silence. There's a quality of learning that's possible once the mind becomes still. It's a kind of organic intelligence. It's not rational, but it's not irrational either. The rational mind has its places, its beauty, it's wonderful. No one's throwing it out the window. But if you're totally attached and identified with it, that's where you'll end up, just going round and round and round. And I would say all of this, finally, is about how to uh, live inside this body that's aging, that must sick, get sick and must die, uh, and to free ourselves inwardly as this biological process unfolds. How will you do that? How do you arouse it? Well, through the thought, as I just mentioned. But you know, anything else can do. I think the last time we were here, I mentioned, in my own case, uh, an improvisation, Saturday Night Live kind of thing. Uh, I just, after teaching these things, a few years ago, I came up and there was a, a film on the late, uh, late movie. And it was an old film. And it had Clark Gable and, oh, I've forgotten, the woman who became his wife and died. Carol Lombard, she died in an airplane crash. Any of you movie buffs know things like that, or old-timers. 
Uh, and while I was watching the film, it wasn't a particularly good film, but, you know, I didn't care. And suddenly I realized that everyone was dead. The stars were, they were bounding around with great sensual energy, full of uh, quite vivacious, seductive, uh, tremendous masculine energy. Uh, uh, they seemed, Clark Gable looked like he definitely would live at least for 2,000 years. Uh, but and I, I knew a lot of, even some of the smaller parts, and I realized, dead, 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 the, the orchestra, all dead, you know, the, the director, the uh, producer, the people giving out popcorn, the uh, audience of the first, you know, uh, it won an award, everyone who gave it the award, gone, dead. Uh, and it was fascinating to watch them all prancing around as if they had forever. Uh, and so that became a Dharma teaching rather than just a crummy old film. Okay, now they didn't know that they were doing that. I don't think Clark Gable uh, was invested in my spiritual education. But almost, I would say anything can be turned around. Uh, so many of the films, for example, that we watch that are really bad are also, they're brilliant expositions of how to create suffering. Uh, that's what makes the films interesting. That's why we, you know, people watch it. And many of them, having to do with aging, sickness, and death, they're all just uh, saturated with ignorance. And they show how people are suffering because they don't want to understand, they don't understand, they could care less. Okay, then this is what happens. Um, other ways of learning this same lesson. Remember, uh, to say everyone has to die, probably we'd all agree with that. I'd be amazed if anyone doesn't. How do you get it? I don't know. One way is to take it up consciously, as I just suggested. Uh, other ways, for example, my, uh, my parents both died within the last couple of years. And uh, my father and mother both wanted to be cremated. So I learned this lesson first with my father. Um, I took his ashes, and I have a little uh, altar in my apartment where I meditate. Uh, and I put the urn with his ashes on the altar. And I mean, I have to say this because if, if I don't meditate, how can I ask you to? And every morning and every evening when I sat, not true, I skip sometimes, I would take a look at the urn and I would reflect and understand that Nathan Rosenberg's remains are in there. And what are they? They're just, you know, a heap of ashes. Uh, and I would make the connection. Oh, at, at first it, it was cold, you know, nothing much happened. At a certain point, uh, it, it became alive. And also an understanding of that, uh, how could he be dead? He's my father. Uh, uh, he's not anyone who dies when your parents die. That's telling you something. Because at a certain point, there's no one in back of you can't blame anyone anymore, you know, it's just us. Okay. And that became a very, very rich meditation for me. Not always. I mean, it isn't that I would devote the whole sitting to it. Sometimes it would just elicit something very, very deep and I'd stay with it. At other times, not much, and I would just drop it. But I would take it up and I'd also take up that this was the last gift my father had given me. He'd given me many gifts, but this is the last one. Basically saying that I'm not exempt from this. Someday I will be like this. Oh, okay, that to me was very, very helpful, uh, rather than 
repeating, let's say, some words that I got from a Buddhist formula, which are well-meaning and useful, but this one really clicked for me. It was very, very helpful. Uh, I've done the same thing with my mother. Um, the Vasudhimaga, which is a, an encyclopedic Theravadan text, uh, suggests one way to enliven this for yourself is to contemplate all these very famous, powerful, wealthy uh, politicians, Olympic athletes, millionaires, uh, famous historical figures, great philosophers, movie sports heroes, whoever you, know, you uh, have tended to put up on a, an altar, so to speak, and understand that they were all dead. Uh, to, to understand that uh, the most powerful generals who've ever lived are dead, the greatest Olympic athletes, the magnificent bodies, highly trained, uh, they died too. Everyone dies. Uh, so you, you can improvise and uh, starting to realize that it's the great leveler. No one gets out of this one. No one. It's not like, uh, what's the ship? You know, I keep Titanic. Some people got escaped. No one escapes from this, from this ship. It has nothing to do with you. You could be poor, you could be wealthy, very successful, very eminent, an unknown person. You could be, etc. And so uh, it's to creatively use that. The next reflection, our lifespan is decreasing continuously. A simple one, useful, time is running out. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Uh, Atisha would uh, watch the dripping of, a wa of, a, of water. There was a place where water would drip and he'd watch it. It's the same as tick-tock. Uh, the Buddha gave us one that has been very powerful for me, and that's the very breath itself. Those who practice breath awareness, probably many of you, uh, we're literally hanging by a breath, and, uh, and we have just so many breaths, in a sense, allotted to us in this life. And at a certain point, we run out of our ration of breath, and it's what is called dead. And so when we follow the breath, it's not just a drill to get calm, in, out, in, out, in, out, and then we get a nice little Buddha smile on our face. That's true, too. That's true, too. We use that for shamatha practice. It's very, very helpful. But in a breath, if you shift your perspective and begin to contemplate the breath as literally life itself, and that not only is the breath uh, running out, but we're literally hanging by breath. In, out. No guarantee that the next breath will come. And so those are three traditional ways of uh, understanding that, but who doesn't see that? You know, you could look at uh, photographs, photograph albums, family albums. You could see um, uh, films, just as I did. I, I, uh, I remember uh, being in the IMS staff room with some staff members. No names will be mentioned. It was a while ago, before your time, Ruth, or anyone else. And there was a film with Paul Newman. Uh, no, we weren't in the staff room. We were watching a, a video. And uh, Paul Newman played some role where he had um, prostate cancer. And he was kind of an old crotchety man with prostate cancer. That was his role. And there were four or five women who were approximately his age, slightly younger. And he had been there, uh, you know, just their dream, bo dream boy for a long time. And they were crushed by seeing this movie. 
they just they would they were extremely honest and open about how much they hated seeing this and of course acknowledged that uh, it was really about them that they if he was then they were because certainly he shouldn't be but he was and they definitely will be and are so that was very effective and then we went around and we got some dharma juice out of that but at first it was it was just uh, just depressing <laughs> okay you know in mentioning samvega or seeing the urgency or seeing that we don't have forever it's very important to see the flip side of that because it's not it's not just that uh life is difficult we're going to die uh let's get on with it uh, what's necessary is a certain faith and optimism, and if you've been practicing for a while, I hope at least some of that's based in your experience, that you, that it, it, you would not helpless. That is, it's not hopeless or helpless. And of course, what it's pointing to is the practice. That is, we didn't have a practice, then it would be an exercise in just rubbing our faces in some inevitable, distasteful fact. But we do have a practice. The question is, will we use it? Will we dare to really practice? Do we have the conviction and so forth? So, Samvega, the urgency comes along with the fact that there's something to help us out here. It isn't just uh, help, things are no good. Uh, there actually is something exists that is meant to deliver us from it. Okay, the third of this uh, next kind of meditations, I'm going through them quickly, but any of the things that I've said could be done on any of them. The amount of time spent during our life to develop the mind is very small. Uh, This one is designed to arouse in us the fact that death will come whether we practice or not, and to help us see how little time we spend practicing, how very little time we spend practicing. Now, maybe that means nothing. So what? I'm in that comfort zone. All I need is 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon. It's not really a matter of quantity. Uh, those of you who think that sitting a fixed time twice a day uh, and just do that and everything else will take care of itself, I don't think so. Finally, it's not about any particular form. It's that those forms uh, have, a, have tremendous, they've been tested and used for centuries, have a way of helping us probe more deeply and understand it's the understanding that frees us. I don't mean uh, merely intellectual understanding. Okay, so one thing to understand is that we spend very, very little time in meditation. Now, this is crucial for us as lay people, although having lived in monasteries, it seems to me just as relevant. And that is, if you think of practice, and often emotionally we do, as just sitting and walking, formal practice, going to IMS or CIMC or some other place uh, to do retreats and that which is technically spiritual, then very, very little of your time is going to be spent in practice. Most of your time is going to be spent what? Raising a family, making money, studying, working on your job. It's hopeless. And that's what I meant. The fourth messenger is not literally somebody who shaved their head and is wearing a robe and has given up everything, it's more of an inner quality. Uh, it's more a commitment to self-awareness and understanding. And so the, the daily life part of the practice, which is what YCIMC was formed, 
honestly and truly. Check it with Narayan and Michael. They know exactly from day one that we all felt that in addition to IMF, not to replace it, which the IMF does a beautiful job in places like IMF, we saw a remarkable gap between what happens on retreat and then when people come home. I don't think you can live your life uh, expecting to get a fix at your retreats and then being a jerk the rest of the time. I don't think it works that way. And so if this helps you, this kind of reflection helps you see that uh, I don't have forever, I'm going to die. Uh, it also is well, uh, to anticipate where we're going. What will help us most to get through this is insight, is seeing. Later on, we're going to see that our property won't help. Our riches, our fame, our books, our book collection, including our great Buddhist collection, that won't help. The people who love us won't help. Nothing can help. Our body is decomposing, it's out of control. Is there anything that we can draw upon? Where to take refuge? Be a light unto yourself. The Buddha said it when he was dying. Uh, I think what I'm going to do is, those are the first three. Uh, next week I'll finish up uh, doing um, from four to nine and uh, some other ones. I'm going to explore with you the uh, some other classical Buddhist meditations that uh, go in the same direction. Uh, I think what I'd like to do now is to uh, pause and some of you uh, need to leave, please. It's a good time to do that. If some of you, the rest of you who want to stay, um, don't worry if you have to get up in the middle of the discussion period. I won't consider it rude. Uh, I'd rather that you stay even if it's just for a few minutes. Maybe you just have your own question and you want to leave. Uh, it's not, also, it's not just about problems or questions. Uh, it's an opportunity for you to talk about your own practice. Uh, if you think that I'm an expert on aging, sickness, and death, sorry to disappoint you. I don't know that anyone is. I don't see how you could stand up and say you are. I've mastered aging, sickness, and death. Okay, so um, those of you have to leave, be a good time to do that. Uh, just a, and then, not really a break, I'd like to just... Um, Give a moment or so for people to leave and then let's start in with a discussion. If any of you would like to come up closer, be helpful for me. discussions can be quite alive. It depends on all of us, our willingness to be open and uh, to not be shy, to be able to speak in a candid way about anything that may be on our mind about anything related to this. 
nothing is too small. Anyone have anything to begin with? Please. Well, uh, in, the, in these teachings, and that these teachings in this case do make sense to me, there is some continuity uh, from that person, not only that tuft of... What? No, no. Uh, the, uh, that, the nature of what we call personality, tendencies, and so forth, it's not just a, a random thing that unfolds. There's your signature on it, and that has gone through probably immense transformation and change, and yet... So it's not the same and it's not different. Uh, sometimes in Zen they'll try to catch you with that, and they have, they, they, we can turn that into a koan and say, when you look at this picture, is, is that the same or different than, than the you that's looking? If you say the same, the teacher will scream at you. If you say different, they'll scream at you. Neither apply, because it's not a matter of op- opposites. It's a process that's unfolding where there is some continuity to it, and yet anatta, the teaching on not-self is saying that it isn't an enduring, fixed entity that's kind of getting older. You know, the same entity is now gray hair, now this, now that. It's an ongoing process, but there also is some, uh, some continuity, the same at death. That's the teaching. You don't have to accept it. Yeah. What did it do for you? Why have you had it there? You don't mind my being nosy and poking around like that. Yeah. Less than perfect. Yes. You did know you were coming here. I knew I was Well, part of the function of these kinds of teachings is for us to begin to see, uh, not in a morbid way, the law of, of change at work when you see a falling leaf, 
uh, a dish that you've had chips. Um, it's all the same message. Yeah, and then, of course, we're chipping. Yeah. There was a hand somewhere over here. Please. It's not, uh, this is a practice, it's not that you walk around all day, I'm going to die, I'm going to, uh, uh, you're right, it, I, I understand. It's, there's a time to do it, uh, to stimulate it, but um, you see, its main function is to get you to practice. And practice isn't uh, walking around being preoccupied that you're going to age and get sick and die, it's to wake up to what's happening right here and right now. Now, if that can help you do that, uh, because and if it can help you uh, do that with fear, if it does bring up fear or whatever it brings up, then it's useful. But if we turn it into an obsession, like you're rightfully mocking, uh, then that would be uh, a misuse of it. Yeah. Also, it would be too much thinking. I mean, you'd just be the mind would just be. It wouldn't be in the moment at all. I wouldn't want to be in a car if you're driving, doing that. Yeah. Uh, what it can do is help you be more fresh and awake because you uh, genuinely are more in touch with how precious life is. And that's what's valuable. It's not a new idea that we have to uh, uh, go, go on over and over and over again. It's to uh, wake up, to help us wake up. Please. You're a Taoist? Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's where your practice is at. Yeah. Uh, sometimes parents will say that. that uh, they, now, we don't know, and you don't know really, the test comes when the time comes to die. But let's say right now, uh, the notion of your own death is not, is okay. But other people in your life is not. Okay, so uh, it, then when that comes up quite naturally, in other words, something occasions that fear, in other words, what, something like what, an illness of a friend or something of that sort? Well, I've heard about that in the same. Okay. 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 <coughs> right. Okay. The, uh, uh, one approach to practicing with it, uh, it's not, we're not, it's, the teachings are not designed to program you in another way, uh, because uh, some, that, that does happen, and it's on the way. That is, people will read these teachings, and then those of us who are good students, you know, have been very good students, uh, then we want to do what's considered appropriate. And so we formulate, at some level of consciousness, the notion that it's natural to die, you know, for goodness sakes, what's the big deal? Everything that is born must age, and stick it. leaves fall, and autumn, after fall comes the winter, and winter and then comes, you know, just uh, read uh, Shakespeare, and Sounds great, you know. So we have the acceptable words, uh, which can be on the way. But the point is not to cultivate a particular reaction in you. So that let's say when that comes up, you don't really have any fear about your own death, quite honestly. But, some, but something is brought up by this fear of someone close to you. Uh, honesty is the key thing. So then the awareness would be with what that... Re- was it an obituary that you read? Okay. So that obituary stimulated something in you. Forget everything that has been said tonight. It's not really that important. What's important is can you be with what that obituary 
brought up in an innocent and naive way. Not analyze it, think about it, and all the rest, but could you put in words just for communication? What did it bring up in you? Is that supposed to be a... Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, what does her resume have to do with it? No, what... We're, this is about you, it's not about her. What did it bring up in you? She has no problems anymore. Okay, what did it bring up in you? See, because we're talking about it. It brought up, was it sadness? Was it, what was it? Anger at what? I see. Okay. Now, now is that where you are? Is that uh, where you've left it? Do you think? Yes. Do you think that's a good resting place? You, I'm sorry, do you think it is a good resting place? That, the, the anger at life. I, I don't mean it's inauthentic, because, see, the practice is about what actually, it's, it's true authenticity. And if you're furious with life for having invented itself in such a way that, what does it do? You go through all this, you get born, you go to get braces, you go through all this trouble, and then what happens? You eat organic vegetables, you're an Orthodox Jew, you die anyway. Okay, so you're entitled if you want to be angry, but then you're suffering in that moment. Yeah, so it's finally it is about you. So you, that was her last gift to you. There's something there about uh, that can uh, be helpful for you if you're willing to practice with what was evoked by the obituary or the movie or the urn with ashes or it's all over. Life, that's what I mean. For me, the great teacher is life itself. It's all over the place, this teaching. Please. Um, you referred earlier to uh, living in the moment. I don't know if you have some Buddhist word for it, but a moment of clarity and it seems to be even beyond thought and viewing it, whatever is going on. That's right. You're going to have to help me with that again. Can, can we move slowly with that one more time, please? It's, not, it's, a, it's a complex idea you're trying to communicate. I want to make sure I understand it. Okay. Okay, now that's just a general notion in practice. Nothing special. Yeah. Uh, do you do you have a practice? Yeah, you see, because 
uh, your words make sense, but if, you, when you, if and when you decide to do a practice, it drops to a level that's beyond the words. It's not a question of deciding to or not deciding to. Let me see if I'm directing it to what you're saying. All, of the, all that's been mentioned tonight is useful. Uh, let's go back to the teachings. What the Buddha says, uh, more than once, is that all he's teaching is suffering and the end of suffering. That's what the teaching is about. Okay. If you have not come to terms with the way things are, that is, uh, to get old, sick, and die, you know how many people have already gone through that? Yet we, we behave as if we've gotten singled out, or our friend got singled out. We probably can't count that high. Or people who've already gone through adolescence, pub- puberty, you know, it's a boyfriend, girl, you know, the same things we go through, they're gone. And then a new batch comes. Uh, all of the, the Serbs and the Kosovars, they'll all be gone. Everyone in this room will be gone. No problem. They won't be here. Okay. Um, the suffering comes in when we attach to wanting things to be a certain way. Okay. Now, it's talked about differently in different schools of Buddhism. They, it amounts, in my opinion, to the same thing. Sometimes it'll be talked about as coming to your original nature. Okay. Uh, that is, that, and that's what the unborn or the deathless is. Is there anything that is truly sacred in life? And I don't mean a great cathedral or a great mosque or whatever. Those are created by human beings. Those are cultivated. I mean, is there anything intrinsically untouched by culture, totally untouched, that is obviously sacred? It's not, a, not an idea. Now, the answer would be yes. If you don't like the word sacred, come up with another one. Uh, whether you call it awakening, or enlightenment, or the deathless, or the unborn. Um, if you're suffering, you're suffering because you're attached to, to something called me. Uh, the suffering is, the ego is suffering. Uh, okay, so, and the ego is uh, terrified of getting old and sick and dying. I think I've gone into that quite a bit in, before this. So any of these teachings are useful in that they help us, if they help us, to uh, clear the mind of that, so that the mind is at peace. Now, it's not that that reward is somewhere in the future, it's in that moment. For example, if, I, if you don't mind my using your example, let's say uh, suddenly you think about that obituary again and it brings up some resentment. And if you're able to bring your awareness to that resentment, not the idea, but you can feel it in your body, it's energy, real energy and the attention is non-judgmental, equanimous, and you watch it and the energy uh, peaks and then it starts to get weaker and then it dissolves and then it falls away and then there's a moment of clarity and peace. Okay, in that moment you've released yourself from the suffering caused by wanting things to be other than the way they are. Your friend shouldn't have died. Do you see what I'm getting at? Good. Okay, now, what I'm talking about on the level of, uh, uh, of words can be easily misunderstood. For example, in the Tibetan tradition, they'll sometimes say that it's in all the Buddhist teachings, the highest teaching is emptiness. What? All this work, and you haven't done retreats, but if you do, your knees hurt and your back hurts and it's boring and you want to go home and you have to wait online for showers and the food isn't what you want. You know, and you do it for years and months and travel, go to Asia, and you get sick, and 
mosquitoes and you get malaria. Uh, why do people do that? Empty. So everything you see there, everything is empty. Empty. Oh, for God's sakes, what a colossal waste of time. Okay. Uh, the place that the practice goes to is beyond measure. It's inconceivable. That is, at a certain point, words are helpless. Concepts, you have a good intellect, sorry, you have to check it at the door. At a certain point, it's helpless. It can't go there. It can take you to the threshold. There's a room for a good intellect to take these teachings. They're verbal and hopefully reasonable to take you there, but finally to open the door. Uh, now that place, I don't think for thousands of years, people in all the great traditions would have cared. There's always been a small number. Most people don't want it. Well, they approve of it, but you do it. Okay. Uh, obviously, there's something extraordinary, which is, could perhaps, I don't know, perhaps is the ultimate fulfillment in life, and may even be the reason we're here. Okay, so uh, don't underplay what this can help you. But no, the end is not just uh, the acceptance. That part is helping you to get free, to be a free human being, to flower as a human being. If it helps you, great. It's just one method. It really is. There are so many. And not everyone uses it or, or needs to. Is there another part to what you were saying? Okay. Please. Sorry, you're going to have to speak up a bit. I thought that was very practical, both of them. Yes, okay, uh, that's a, a complicated question. Uh, no, it's, no, 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 it is simple. It's complicated in this sense that the answer would be different for each person in this room. Uh, for example, if somebody has a fierce infatuation with their body, I mean an incredibly strong identification with their body, some, uh, they, I'm going to, next week I'll go into some where you contemplate the decomposition of the body, which may sound awful. Uh, and also, even in the ancient times, but it, it's done today too, I, part of my training I did it, you actually can see a corpse. Okay? To help you understand uh, a corpse at a certain stage of decomposition, to help you understand that this is what happens to this body, if you're totally fixated on the body, and devote all of your energy to clothing it, washing it, oiling it, massaging it, vitamining it, mineralizing, you know, endlessly, uh, etc. Uh, and then uh, you can't hold on to it. You can't freeze dry it and make it be what you want to be. It's a losing game. It's exhausting. It's unfulfilling. You can get Bermuda shorts when you're 95. It still isn't going to be so much fun. <laughs> okay, so that might be useful for someone to help them let go a little bit. Someone else may not need these. Quite a, they may be uh, other... Uh, in terms of the practice, y your question, uh, here are a number of ways in which you can uh, use it, and a lot of it would have to do with your affinity. Like, if you're drawn to it, that's why really it requires an individual interview. It's not something that just 
put in a loudspeaker to everyone and now go and do it, not at all. Um, if you're drawn to it, let's say we have nine contemplations, you may find that one of them is very rich. Like I did some things contemplating the parts of the body in my own practice, and for some reason, I don't know why, bones were very, very rich, skeleton. Always have been since childhood. I've been intrigued by skeletons. I don't know why. And so that part of the practice, it's just one part of the body, became very fertile for me. Uh, you can just, uh, at the beginning of a sitting, uh, you have to learn how to use this, maybe spend two or three minutes uh, just uh, catching a glimpse of one. Uh, I'm of the nature to die. I'm not exempt from that lawfulness. I'm just, and that can perhaps arouse some energy so that then your practice, the regular Vipassana practice, has some oomph. You know, sort of you prime the pump a little bit. I use death awareness on my own retreats when I'm getting sleepy. Okay, so I don't, uh, if I get, get sleepy, I, all I have to do is contemplate my own death, and I have ways of doing that, some of which you're learning now. And I wouldn't say always, but about 80% of the time perks me right up. Uh, when I see that, and it works better than fast walking or blinking my eyes or, you know, so many of the antidotes to sloth and torpor that you read about in the book. Uh, other ways of practicing with it are to go through all nine. Uh, you can go through it, uh, take one and go for a whole week with it, then you can go two, then three, then uh, gradually take them all on. You can feature one, and at the end of a session, uh, skim just the remaining to put it all in context, because they're really all kind of saying the same thing, um, you may drop the whole thing altogether and say, this isn't for me. Maybe you have a fierce yearning to understand or to be free. That may give you all the energy you need. You don't need this. So it would be very, very, uh, quite individual. And there are definitely times, in, uh, and for certain people at a certain state, condition their life where it's not a good practice. Uh, if you have a lot of ups and downs, if you've had a lot of losses, uh, if you don't have a strong practice yet, it might be uh, counterproductive. So it's not something I would play with it, because there's real energy involved if you take it seriously. Yeah. Sometimes it's intuitive. All of a sudden, I'll just find myself doing it. Yeah. Anyone else? I see. So the, it has helped you. It helped you be of some uh, an asset in that situation. Of course. Yeah. 
Okay, now. You said that? I couldn't say it out loud. Yeah. You acknowledged it to yourself. But I think I was holding it in mind in the Yeah, and if you can move slowly with us, take us with, with you, uh, how did that help you and then him, do you think? You know, it's all sort of speculation, but it's fun to... If I can uh, just share some experience I've had, I'm not a pastoral counselor, but um, the nuances of, of, uh, of, uh, of putting these practices into action in a wise and compassionate way uh, are endless, the refinements of it. Uh, when my mother was dying last year, uh, she was, uh, they kept saying she's going to die at any time now, and my sister and I were with her. I checked into a hotel uh, near, near the hospital, and we were with her, you know, almost around the clock, as one of us was, and we were with her. Uh, the practice helped me in that my sister kept, my mother was 90, my sister kept saying, um, what a shock, boy, Larry, did you, uh, isn't it a shock that mom, they, that mom is going to die? I never thought about this, this is, and it wasn't to me, like, for a number of years, whenever I would say goodbye to her, I realized this might be the last time I'd see her. You know, she was elderly and failing, and both my sister and I love uh, our mother, uh, and I'm not saying it wasn't painful, it was, but it was certainly not a, like surprise, not at all, but for my sister it was as if she had not allowed that emotionally to even be a possibility. So great, the practice helped me. But here's where the practice didn't help me. Uh, that's why you have to, awareness is the best practice, because if you can really stay awake, then you can learn and you can kind of guide yourself to what is really wise and compassionate. When my mother was getting closer and closer to the end, her breathing was very belabored. And the poor woman, it just seemed exhausting. And we were all with her as she strained for each in-breath and each out-breath. She was on machine. She, she was conscious and she knew we had a signal system worked out with her hand and my hand and squeezing and this and that. But for all of us, it was just painful to watch how hard she was working to keep her breath going. And so I gave her this, you know, Dharma wrap, which might have made sense maybe to some of us. I don't, I don't even know. You never know until you do it. Uh, Mom, uh, you've lived a full and wonderful life, and uh, the body is, is uh, now it's uh, used, uh, used up. It's going, but it's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, it's, you don't need to struggle so hard. It's fine. It served you well. I had all kinds of nice words about the body and impermanence. She was holding my hand. And here's someone who was on the edge of death and had no strength, right? Every time I would say let go or impermanent, or uh, her hand, the squeeze would get tighter and tighter. Uh, until I felt she was going to, gangrene was going to set in. And I didn't get it until finally I realized, duh, she doesn't want to hear that uh, it's getting close to the end, that the body is served her well, don't fight, let go. So I shifted and I gave a metta as a message. You know, Linda and I love you, many people love you, you've been such a loving person. She released her grip, she started to smile, and she was just happy. She didn't want truth. She's not, she's not a practitioner. She just wanted 
to feel loved and to know that her life wasn't a waste. And that was much more useful. And I, you know, left feeling, boy, it's tricky to know how to, what is right. But the only way to have a chance of doing that is you have to be in touch with yourself. And I saw that my message was coming out of, to some degree, my own anxiety, you know, sort of like seeing how belabored her breath was. And I could feel everyone else to like, do it for us, mom. Uh, and the other was, it was straight Buddha Dharma doctrine, you know, sort of like a member of the Communist Party spouting, you know, let go, impermanent. Uh, and, you know, it just was not appropriate. It wasn't skillful. That's the other Buddhist word, which I've grown to hate, but it's a good word. It's not skillful. Uh, you see what I'm getting at? So if you're, in the, if you're doing that work, it's quite a challenge. Uh, I hope you do bring the practice into it, because it, it probably will have a boundless applications. Yeah, yeah. And you, mainly, you'll learn about yourself. You learn a lot about yourself. Yeah. Uh, we have time for one more contribution or question. Please. Yes. Often it is, yes. Um, how, what, what is the difference between the idea of that yes. and the reality of that? Okay. I'm never going to experience my own reality. And I understand. And then be able to look at it. No. Yeah. Okay, no, it's not looking at it objectively. Okay. Uh, let's say you're, um, this practice can be done by anyone at any age. Let's say you're 25 years old and in very good health and you're precocious, and you realize you want to take this on. It's not just for old fogies, this practice. And you suddenly realize the fear of death. But when you look closely and investigate, what you see is the mind has invented an end to that which is known as me, which will come in the future sometime, because you're in good health, you're safe, warm, well-nourished, uh, etc. There's no... Okay. So in that sense, you're not dying. In a profound way, we all are dying from moment to moment, and we don't know when. The end could come in a second. Okay. Contrast that to, let's say, my mother. You know, where, excuse me, where you were right there, it really, it's, it'll be a moment just like this, you know, that you and I are sharing, all of us, where you'll be breathing, there'll be some degree of cognizance, uh, there'll be a temperature, There'll be perhaps people or no people. The body will feel a certain way. In other words, uh, it will be a real event that doctors will say, you are dying, your vital signs. You see the difference? Th then what you're looking at is the, you're, mu you're much closer, although in a profound way, you're always dying, you know, for a moment, and you could die at any moment. But uh, a lot of the time, the fear of dying is an unexamined understanding that the ego has created a sense of time, psychological time, and the obliteration of it, and it's terrifying to it, a world where it doesn't exist anymore. How could Cambridge exist without Larry walking into the square? Well, it can exist, and it will exist, okay? Uh, do you see what I'm getting at? So it's just to, now, in the moment, let's say if my, uh, in this practice, are, are you a practitioner, sir? You do some kind of meditation practice? It's not, I'm not the truant officer, I just need to know how to talk. <laughs> Uh, do, do you have a sitting meditation practice? 
Okay. Uh, that's, it still could be a yes, it's fine. Um, in Vipassana, I'll limit it to this particular tradition. Uh, but it's, it's true actually in all the Buddhist teaching, there's a, a tradition of dying consciously. Uh, sometimes, how, some of it may not be true, it may be romanticized of, let's say, great yogis and meditators uh, dying in the meditative posture. Uh, wanting to go out in, in the saddle, if you know what I mean. Okay. Uh, not to die confused and bewildered and in denial and all the rest of it. You see, the logic of everything that's been said here is quite different than the logic that uh, influences, let's say, much of the world today. Uh, Woody Allen said it the best way. He said, it's not that I'm, in one of his films, it's not that I'm afraid of dying, it's just that I don't want to be there when it happens. Okay. Okay. Uh, from the point of view of Buddha Dharma, I'll, I'll speak personally. I am afraid of dying, and I do want to be there when it happens. I, uh, it's completely reversed. We're willing to experience the fear of death now, while we're not l- literally dying, in the sense in which I just conveyed it, so that perhaps we can uh, shed that fear and practice right to the end. You see, one of the, one of the, fr- one of the kinds of great fruit that can come out of practice is to die at peace, to die at ease, to have an easy death, for to die uh, uh, in complete acceptance. But it's not an ideological, opinionated acceptance. It's truly and genuinely being at peace with the fact that you've lived fully and now that life is coming to an end. Uh, to practice right up until and into your last breath. Do you see what I'm getting at? Now, that would be practicing right, you know, uh, right into death. Am I, am I, is that getting? Uh, yes. There's a but in there. Well, my question really has to do more with the source for the example. Um, it, and, and, and what is the approximate, the immediate cause of fear? The idea of Find out. I see. But have you ever had fear of death? I think so. Not sure. Not okay. Um, it's about you. This whole exchange is, is about you. Um, could you backtrack a bit? Say what, just repeat the last thing that you said, what you, what you really, ah, I, I think I have it. What I am saying, it's not an absolute. What I am saying is that an enormous amount of fear, all kinds of fear, death may be the biggest fear. Like the Tibetans will say that death is the mother of mother fear. Like that's, if you can really deal with your fear of dying, then other fears are really small potatoes. And that does make some sense. They're sort of small deaths. You know, we were afraid of losing face or this, that, and the other, which is nothing in the face of being obliterated. Um, If you look closely at any fear, and I've done some of that, uh, and I would invite you to do it. You don't have to sit to do this. Uh, see if this is so. 
The ground out of which an enormous amount of fear comes, the soil out of which fear grows, is thinking. Now, there are fears that are instinctive. Let's say you're about to step off a cliff or there's a cobra about, these are ancient examples, uh, you can have modern ones, a car is coming right at you, uh, and there's something in us, and that fear, or a mad dog is running at that fear gives you energy to do something that's in service of your survival. I wouldn't say there's thinking there, that's uh, the species where fortunately, okay. But check, uh, there's most fear, I would say most, let's, to be more modest, a huge amount of fear. If you look closely, you'll see that it has to do with thinking, where the mind envisions a future, maybe it's even three minutes from now, that will either repeat something terrible that happened in the past, and it will be repeated, or it's imagining something like death is just one thing. It could be anything else. I'll give a talk tonight, and uh, people won't like the talk, and you'll all uh, start walking out, and I'll feel humiliated, and uh, I didn't have that fear. But let's say if I were more humble, I might have. Okay, yeah. Um, now, if I practice and I saw that I'm making this fear, I haven't even given the talk yet, I might as well give a rotten talk and have everyone walk out because I've already punished myself in my own mind. I've created this scenario. An insightful seeing into that, it falls away and I'm perhaps less afraid or I'm free of that particular fear, at least in that moment. So what I was saying was,